you're tuned into This Week in Moab. I'm your host, Molly Marcello. So listeners out there, you might have noticed some curious street lights lately around town. Specifically, uh, they have signs next to them urging passerby to look up. Uh, these are new installations of dark sky compliant LED streetlights, and the person uh, in the studio with me via the magic of the internet is here to tell us more about them. Hi, Mila. Hi, Molly. Thank you for joining us, uh, Mila. And uh, so where can the public take a look at these new streetlights? You know, they were done in a few strategic locations. Am I right? Yeah, we tried to pick a couple spots, one on the east side of town and one on the west side. Um, and I think our uh, we thought about it afterwards, and I think our signs probably should have said look down instead <laughs> of look up because we don't want people looking up into those bright lights. And really the, the biggest impact is what you see around you on the ground. So yeah, so we've got um, three different light levels that, we're, that we put up. Um, those are based on uh, traffic count, so the different uh, different street uses, street types. And there's each of the three is at those two locations. So um, we were constrained by um, the Rocky Mountain Power product availability. So we couldn't, you know, kind of put them exactly where we wanted to. We had to Mm -hmm. um, work within their their parameters. Um, But we did find a couple spots. One of them is on the east side of town, the Beerscheid building, um, and then the corner of 300 East and 300 South and then just up 300 East, um, that first light there. And then the one on the west side of town is um, Swanee Park, uh, just right across from Rocky Mountain Power, then up on Emma Boulevard, and then there's one at the corner of Maine and 400 North. Okay, so you've got them kind of all over town, um, Mm -hmm. the examples, of course. So this demonstration is part of a plan. It's Moab City's streetlight conversion project, uh, which is replacing all of the streetlights and city limits with dark sky compliant LED fixtures. So can you tell us what LED conversion, this stuff has to do with dark skies? You know, how will this help us? um, How will this help Moab City be compliant under under their own code? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So uh, this is actually kind of a twofold effort. One of it is um, related to dark skies and, and compliance with our dark sky code. And then the other one is really just upgrading the streetlights to the LEDs. And so um, there are many communities across the country right now that are converting their streetlights to LEDs, um, kind of with or without the dark sky component. Um, and one of the reasons is that they are they can save you up to 70% of the power that the high pressure sodium bulbs use right now. So they're way more energy efficient. Um, They also last many, many, many years um, and they require almost no maintenance. So um, they're more efficient from that standpoint as well. So uh, many, many towns are really excited about that. Um, They also provide a lot more light, you know, just like the LEDs that you can switch out your light bulbs to in your house, um, same kind of thing. Um, what we're excited about from the dark sky standpoint is that the fixtures themselves um, allow for the light to be much more controlled. So there's no upglow. So there's there's a bug rating for every fixture, and that's backglow, upglow, and then glare. Um, and all of these fixtures have zero for the uplight. So there's no uplighting whatsoever. So none of the streetlights going into our sky at all. Um, so that's what makes them really amazing for dark skies. Okay, so there's two things. There's the LED light itself, and then there's the fixture. 
Mm-hmm. So we're getting a combo deal. Pretty much. Yeah. And and really it's because these, um, the LEDs are uh, part and parcel of the fixture. So like you okay. can't just go out and change the light bulb in any of these streetlights. Mm. For the LEDs, you have to replace the whole head of the streetlight. It's all integrated together. And what is the experience? I mean, like, are, are we going to be noticing that these lights are different? Like, what is the experience, our visual experience going to be like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, I forgot to mention that the that and that's related to this. The other part of the dark sky component is the color temperature. Mm. Um, so the light will be 3000 Kelvin. Um, so that's the, the color temperature of that bulb. Um, and it's because it's an LED, it's going to be more full spectrum color experience. So, um, you know, when you're under there, you'll actually be able to see colors, um, you know, versus what we have now is mostly that orange glow (laughs) that's sort of like hazy orange Mm -hmm. feeling that everything is that color um so these will be true pretty much true color they may seem brighter at first um they've assured us that they'll get a little bit less bright after the first uh big like windstorm or rainstorm when the fixtures get some dust on them and then they'll stay at that brightness for probably the next decade. Um, But yeah, the experience will definitely be different. Um, You know, I think the thing to remember is that like dark skies compliance doesn't mean less light. It just means light where you want it and not where you don't. So, you know, we may have, uh, some people might experience that as brighter. um, But, you know, if you look around when you're walking around on the streets, hopefully it'll just be a better lit street experience and then um, less light pollution if you're out, you know, say in sand flats or arches. Um, Hopefully that that glow won't be coming up from the city at all. Wow. Okay. So, you know, you already explained that there are several different sites where um, community members are already experiencing the new streetlights. What's the timeline projected to convert all of the city streetlights? Do you happen to know how many we have off the top of your head? I do. I think we're at, there were a few that we that we think might have, might actually be the counties, but I'm pretty sure we're at 412. <laughs> That's a lot. So <laughs> it's a lot. It's yeah. definitely a lot. Yep. And you know, how, what's the timeline looking like to convert all of them? Yeah. So we're hoping to have this demonstration up for another couple weeks, I think. Um, and then the council will need to approve a contract with Rocky Mountain Power and actually order the street lights and the light levels that we choose. And then, um, I believe they said there's about a six or seven week lead time now from when the contract is signed up to getting the product in. And then they'll be able to send down um, at least one crew and they would be able to do all of our lights within about two weeks. Okay, so this actually, you know, I I was going to ask you about this next thing, which is the survey. So this means that like Mm -hmm. the public still has a chance to sort of weigh in Mm -hmm. on this process. Can you talk about the streetlight conversion survey and what this is going to help Moab City with? Sure. Yeah, we're just hoping to get some feedback, you know, and make sure that that this is the direction everybody wants to go. Um, you know, I think there's not a lot of uh, of kind of wiggle room within what we what the the actual streetlights we have and the options that we have to put them up. Mm. Um, I think you know the thing is that we're just kind of confirming again with the public that that we want to be a dark sky community and that we want to be more energy efficient and that you know we're all on board with this. effort. Okay. Um, You know, speaking of dark sky compliance, you know, the city and the county um, each have their own dark sky ordinances that they passed in 2019. And uh, we, we all have until 2024 (laughs) 
to mm-hmm. get into compliance uh, with those ordinances. You know, are there other things that are dark sky related that the city is tackling right now beyond the streetlight conversion? Yeah. Um, so we are hoping to kind of be the take the first step um, in complying with our ordinance. The county is also working on uh, converting their lights. Um, they'll be doing the street lights that they own. They only have about 80. Okay. Um, so they'll also be doing theirs at the same time as the city does ours. So hopefully all the lights in the valley um, that are owned by city and county for, for street lights at least will be converted to be dark sky compliant at the same time. Um, they, the county and the city are both also planning on converting all of our facilities lights to be dark sky compliant um, sometime I think within the year is the plan. Um, and then we'll be uh, working together to work on outreach to um, start helping the community uh, bring their own lights up to speed. Um, that's going to start with a, a possibility to get um, barn lights. So like area lights, they, they kind of look like uh, private private streetlights okay. almost yeah, sure. up, up on the poles. Um, you know, so Rocky Mountain Power has a number of um, LED dark sky compliant lights in there in stock right now. And they would be offering um, to change those out for people when the city and county change out their lights mm-hmm. uh, without charging anyone for the mobilization cost to come down and do that. So the, you know, the city and county would be sharing that cost um, of the crews coming to town and then uh, it would really just be the, you know, it takes them not very long and then just the cost of the fixture. So um, that's the first the first opportunity. And then uh, we have, um, we're going to be working, I think, with the governor's office of economic development to um, try to find some funding to help residents uh, convert their lights. And we'll be doing some outreach to that effect and um, hopefully being able to offer lighting audits. So somebody who can come by your house and let you know, um, you know, which lights need might need changing and which ones um, might be fine or what you could do to, to fix those. So yeah, we've got a, we've got a couple years and we're going to kick off the process now and, and hope to be in good shape by the time 2024 rolls around. Okay, so this is this is you know a multi-step process from mm-hmm. government to like commercial buildings to residential buildings, and it exactly. sounds like the city has keeping all of this stuff in mind. You know, there is a lot of information about dark skies um, on Moab City's website. Um, you know, I, the, the Dark Skies Working Group, of course, has lots of information as well. Information about how to convert your own property. Um, speaking of facilities, you made me think of the ball fields, <laughs> the big bright lights <laughs> yeah. at the ball fields. So yeah. you know, when you're driving down Sandflats Road and it's dark that's what you see. Um, tell us about that. Will those be converted? Right. So there are definitely a few um, a few areas of code that we are going to be working out with the International Dark Sky Association. Um, the ball fields lights are one of them. They fall into a special category because they are not on all night. Mm. Um, they're only there for special events. Um, but, you know, that's a question that we have. And then similarly, we need to figure out, for instance, what to do with string lights, with like fairy lights, you know, because they aren't shielded either. Mm. Um, you know, and I think technically right now, for instance, those wouldn't be allowed. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, exactly. <laughs> it would be so sad. Um, and then they're really not obnoxious, you know, for the most part. So, um, you know, and then we have uh, some issues with like second story lights mm. as well, being a little bit confusing in the code. So um, that's another one of the things that we're we're working on. We're working um, to uh, iron out all of those issues before you know we really need to to take them to be enforcing it in town. 
Um, and then I did also want to just mention that there was, I don't know if anybody saw it, there was a New York Times article uh, just, I think, out last week um, a, from somebody who visited Moab specifically for our dark skies oh. and was completely blown away and wrote about it in the New York Times. So I'm going to have to check that out. Definitely. Uh, that's, it's really interesting to say because, you know, I think sometimes with this dark sky conversation, um, we hear about how much has been lost and not necessarily like how much we still have and what protection measures have been put in place. Um, so that's, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Utah is one of the, has, uh, I think the highest concentration of, um, dark sky parks and places, Mm -hmm. designated places in the country. Amazing. You know, um, you know, it sounds like there's places in the code that um, the city staff is going to recommend council look at a little bit further as the process Mm -hmm. continues. Um, The streetlights in general, though, I did want to ask about streetlights on residential neighborhoods versus Mm -hmm. like side streets versus main street. Are these different? Like, is that Mm going to be a different experience? Yeah, the brightness levels will be different for those different streets. So there's three different categories um, that we ended up with, and we had a a lighting designer do this study for us. Um, There's what's called, what is it, the Illumination Engineering Society, (laughs) IES. They have standards based on street use um, for brightness levels. And so that's uh, safety standards, essentially, and then, you know, also just recognizing uh, the different types of uses that you might see, you know, more pedestrians, more cars, quicker speeds, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and so the three different street categories uh, that they used were um, collector streets, which are sort of in the middle, um, main street, obviously the the highway is one of those, and then um, local streets. Okay. And um, so our collector streets, or sorry, our main streets are the highway, and then um, the alternate route that's designated, which is which is 100 north down 400 east. Um, so those are our, our main streets. And you can see all this on the map on our website. Uh, they're, they're all color coded. And then the collector streets are kind of like the, the main, the main off highway streets. So, um, you know, the like east, west, uh, 100, um, like center street, 100 south to, or 300 south, like those, right. those ones are collector streets, um, 500 west as well. Um, and then everything else is local. So okay. all the other, you know, interior residential neighborhoods, all those are local. And so those would have the lowest light level. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the uh, taller temperatures will be different. Those would all be the same. So that light experience would be the same, but um, the lumen levels would be different between those three. Um, the other thing to keep in mind that's unique about, <laughs> about Moab is that most uh Many, if not most, of our streetlight poles are different heights, um, and so and so um, we what we had to do was make sure that the the light experience of the person on the ground is the same on each of those street types. So that might mean that one of the lights on a higher pole is brighter than the light on the lower pole to get the same experience on the ground. So, you know, when you look up at the lights, they may look like they are different brightnesses in different places. And that's because of those different pole heights. Um, But ideally the experience of walking down or driving down a street that's of, you know, one type would have the same brightness level on the ground. Okay, so this was a little more complicated than just changing out the bulb, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Did you have someone, you know, mapping out every mm-hmm. streetlight? 
in, in yeah we did actually so um we we have a new uh americorps vista volunteer in our office richard laurie and he did an amazing job he took out a laser rangefinder and went to every single street light in town matched up the street light number on the pole to the rocky mountain power pole number and then took the height of that pole from the ground with the rangefinder so we have a full and robust map of all of the streetlights in Moab. Um, And then uh, we've worked with our, the city engineering department put together the GIS map that you can find online that has, um, it's searchable by your address. So you can see what uh, light level you'll have outside your street. Um, And then uh, that's how we're gonna be able to, um, yeah, to figure out what light levels we want everywhere. And like I said, we had a, a, uh, engineer, a light engineer, um, do the study for us to to get those levels. One thing um, I would like to ask you before you go: I, Am I right to say that some of this could be grant funded, or how are we paying for the streetlight conversion? Mm-hmm. So the city council budgeted for it last year. Um, so we do have some money set aside in the budget already. And then uh, the state is going to be providing, they've already provided some money for financial assistance for residences. Um, and we're talking with them about uh, how they want to assist us with our streetlight conversion or whether or not they want that to also be passed on to residents conversion as well. Um, but we do have it in our budget for this okay. year. And what's the total cost? It's it's a little bit TBD because we have to um, get our final count, um, but it should be somewhere around $95,000. But the, the thing about the LEDs is that we will make that cost back within three years. And like, like you said, these streetlights are going to last at least a decade. Is that the, mm-hmm. is that the idea? They should, they, yep, they should last about a decade without really much maintenance at all. Yep. Well, we've been speaking to Mila Dunbar-Irwin, the Sustainability Director at Moab City, about streetlight conversion, dark night skies, code compliance, all that fun stuff. There's a survey um, if you want to check out the uh, streetlights that have been converted and give Moab City some feedback. Um, that survey is at moabcity.org slash project. Mila, is there anything else that you think uh, is important to mention about this at this moment? I think we covered everything. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Um, listeners, you're tuned into This Week in Moab. Um, we are going to say goodbye to Mila. Thank you, Mila. Thank you. And up next, we're going to be speaking with Andy Smith from Grand County EMS. Hello, Andy. Hello. How are you? So, Andy, it's really nice to have you back up here. Thank it's you. It's been a while um, yeah. since you've been to the station, and I wanted you up here to talk about some of the ongoing stuff that EMS has been up to. Sure. I want to kind of set the scene for listeners because uh, Grand County EMS covers 3,700, am I right? Yeah. Square miles, yeah. which includes 6,000 miles of roads and trails. Yeah. Um, and you don't just provide services for locals. You provide services for anyone who is in an emergency yeah. situation. How are you doing this? <laughs> that's a that's a very good question. I ask myself that every day. <laughs> no, th- uh, thank you, Molly, for having me in. Uh, yeah, it's it's a big task for our department to do so. And um, we, we have incredible staff and incredible uh, paramedics and EMTs who yeah. every day go out and do this and make it happen. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, uh, like you said, there's 6,000 miles of roads and trails in Grand County that have to be covered by somebody. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're 
grateful to be able to provide that service to citizens and and just those coming through as well. So, how big is Green County EMS right now? Sure. Yeah. So we we're comprised of twenty full time employees. Uh, that includes uh, volunteers or not? Sorry, volunteers. <laughs> ad- administrative staff. Okay. And then another twenty two. Um, PRN or on-call employees who sign up for shifts as they can. So mm-hmm. we're, we operate three ambulances every day, 24-7, and, um, and a uh, shift captain or somebody mm-hmm. that's on and available to help manage calls every day. So so how many people are on an ambulance? Two. Two. So, yeah. Okay. So we have seven, usually seven people staffed 24-7 all the time. Okay. Um, and... Yeah, I'm going to make a wild guess, yeah. but I think you have been at Grand County EMS, I want to say at least a decade. Uh, like two weeks ago was a decade. Yeah. Oh my gosh, ten years. so right on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 10 years is a good amount of time to see how an agency has shifted, changed, mm-hmm. grown. You know, where is Grand County EMS now versus like when you came in? Like what changes have you yeah. either seen or, you know, helped um, move along for the agency? Yeah. Um, you know, I when when I first started, I, uh, I came to Moab because the place is just amazing. And the organization in the department uh, was just such a great great organization and and they provided an incredible service and value to the community and we've made a lot of changes and um, you know we moved from um, EMT service to a paramedic level or an ALS level service we've also uh, since 2016 had to continue to move uh, towards more full-time staff as the demands on the department kept increasing Mm -hmm. and uh, just you know recently I say recently because it does feel like everything stopped when when COVID hit but uh, 2019, uh, we moved to a special service district. So we now have a uh, seven-member board that, that manages and helps determine the direction of the organization. So uh, those, those are all the changes. You know, in that, in that same decade, call volume has doubled. So when I first started, we were running somewhere around 850 calls a year with two full-time employees and another 40 volunteers. Mm. And uh, last year we were, I can't remember the exact number, it was close to 1,700 uh, calls. And so, um, you know, the, the call volume has increased and it's necessitated change. Okay, so, so you're getting busier, which is making you need to build more capacity. Yeah. How has it been having the seven-member board um, kind of focused on Grand County EMS? It's, you know, it... <laughs> I have to say I love it because I pushed for it. I'm I'm just kidding. Um, I do love it actually. Uh, one of one of the incredible things about it is each of these board members brings something different to the table, uh-huh. but they're all focused on what's best for the organization, and they have been willing to be creative and find ways to improve and to think a little bit outside the box to help our staff and to um, you know move the department forward. It it, it really has been pretty pretty awesome to see them all work together and uh to see the also that our staff see that as well they they recognize that the board's helping so now you also mentioned that one of the major changes in the last decade was moving to a paramedic service Mm -hmm. can you explain that for for us like what what is the significance of that sure yeah so um the, the difference, and, and again, there's Utah has some goofy rules, but there's <laughs> sure. a difference between uh, BLS, ALS, and paramedic ALS, uh, but it 
all of it, sorry, BLS is basic life support. ALS is advanced life support. There you go. Um, essentially what the difference is is a, an advanced provider typically runs about 300 hours of training. A paramedic is 1,600 hours. Um, it's equivalent to, a, to a, almost a bachelor's degree okay. by the time they're all said and done with all their prerequisites. And um, that's the biggest difference mm-hmm. is the, the background and the education that they're given uh, there's some more tools with that. We carry a myriad of additional medications Okay. Um, because of that. And also we do things like we have purchased ventilators, which were in really short supply during COVID. Mm. We were able to get our hands on two ventilators to help mm. through that process. And, and under agreement with the hospital, we were able to use right. theirs and they were able to use ours. And so it, you know, those sort of things that our paramedics can do are uh, really pretty extraordinary, really, when you think about it. We provide a lot of uh, frontline care that you'd only get in an ER in most areas. Mm. So, we, yeah. Why did you, you know, as, as the director of Grand County EMS, like, why was it important for you to push for, you know, having a paramedic level service? I think the remoteness of our location. Yeah. Uh, we, we call it the paramedic paradigm in the nation right now in that the places that can afford to have paramedics are usually cities and that's where they're least needed. Mm. Um, and you probably see that in a lot of services. Um, but the reality is uh, the additional medications and the training that they have really lends itself well to the rural areas. Yeah. Uh, we do a lot of interfacility transports where we might take a patient from Moab who needs to go to St. Mary's or to Salt Lake or to St. George, which we've done a few mm-hmm. times as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, you know, seeing medicine happen and work and watching a patient change over time really is what that extra education lends yourself to be able to do to make changes and adjustments based on a longer-term treatment plan, sure. um, whereas most basic or advanced-level providers, it's it's really a, you know, I got an hour with this patient. I'm not going to see much change. Mm. I'm just going to take care of basics and move on. And not that those things aren't important. Yeah. Uh, they're extremely important in saving someone's life. But, um, you know, the longer-term management of a patient is why that was needed in our rural area. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I seem to remember that most of your calls in you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but most of your calls are from our residential area. Yeah, still, um, which surprises everyone when I, (laughs) (laughs) of course, different months are different, you know, swings different directions. But overall, if you average it out, it's about a 60-40 split still. Okay. So about 60% local and about 40% non-local. And we determine that based on zip code. Yeah. So, you know, if someone tells us they live here and their zip code, they have a zip code here, they live here as far as mm-hmm. we're concerned. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. We don't really dig too in depth <laughs> when it comes to that. If you tell me you're local, you're local. All right. Yeah. You're, yeah. There's no, like, test that <laughs> no. you're, you're giving like, them. What do they call this trail? Right, That's exactly. not what we do. Yeah. I know. Where's the best place to eat? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it does seem, even though you said it's a 60-40 split, like, your staff has to respond to a little bit of everything. Yeah. Can you give um, our listeners an idea of, like, what type of calls you do go out on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of times, you know, our, our Facebook pages or the stuff we put out in media a lot of times mm-hmm. glamorizes our job, I think. Um, and, you know, we might be doing that on purpose to get some people <laughs> to apply. But the reality is most of what we do is still dealing with people mm-hmm. in town who are sick. Yeah. And uh, whether that's going to their residence when they've had a stroke or difficulty breathing or chest mm-hmm. pain, um, we're going to a local hotel for that. Um, mm-hmm. That is most of what we do. It's mm-hmm. it's at least about 60% of those calls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, any day our crews uh, today were on a vehicle accident in Arches National Park. 
and then they were on a person who fell and they needed some help back in and had a little bit of pain and um, here in town and an elderly resident and so you know your day can go from nothing to <laughs> to crazy in a matter of minutes sure. um, we recently had a oh gosh I 10-hour call um, uh, up in the LaSalle's. And, uh, you know, those calls can be extremely long and extremely tiring for people. But Mm -hmm. they can can run, you know, anything from, like I said, base jumpers to grandma needs some help. And, uh, you know, we we take pride in all of that. We enjoy serving the the residents in any capacity. That brings to mind that, you know, need for different training. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, what kind of training does, you know, a a staff member have to complete? Yeah, we we do have some folks who have specialized training and we do offer that in either rope, rescue, Mm -hmm. swift water, those sort of things. And they work very, very closely with our search and rescue team in, in doing those things. Um, but we do have staff that specialize in, um, we have some staff that specialize in things like, um, what we call our MIH program, which is something that's kind of new, but they kind of are clued in more when they go into homes to look for things that are trip hazards or fall hazards and to report that and help mitigate those sort of things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, our average paramedic, uh, is, is being trained almost in everything, a little bit of everything. Um, and yeah. most of them take, uh, you know, take courses beyond that as well. Sure. So we do burns, we do advanced mm-hmm. trauma, we do mm-hmm. all sorts of things as well. So this MIH, what does MIH stand for? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I use a lot of TLAs, <laughs> yeah, three-letter yeah. acronyms. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to keep up. Trying to keep up. <laughs> MIH is uh, Mobile Integrated Healthcare, and, okay. and um, we call it community paramedicine. That's kind of where it, where the name originated, but the nation has trended towards this MIH term. So okay. And essentially what it is, is um, it's EMS trying to be a little bit more proactive than reactive to situations. And, uh, you know, if we have patients who need specific things to help them, um, that they're not able to connect all the dots in the community between people who can help them. Mm-hmm. We have staff, a couple of staff members who are trained to go into their home and assess and see what they can do. And the goal of the program is, is you know, our community has so many ex- incredible resources for people. Yeah. Everything that we offer is offered elsewhere. Mm. Um, but a lot of times people don't know how to connect the dots. Mm. And because we're mobile already, yeah. we're already going into their home when they call 911. Mm-hmm. We already have established relationships with some of these folks. We can help mitigate those problems for a few weeks mm-hmm. and then uh, get them the help they need from these outside resources, make those resources aware. Interesting. So how does that work? Like, does someone, you know, do you get a call and then your team assesses that this could be, you Mm -hmm. know, a good situation for, or this could be an opportunity to do a little preventative care? Yeah. So there's a couple different ways that a, that a mobile integrated health visit is what, what we kind of call them can be triggered. And that is, uh, typically by our staff, if they if we receive multiple 911 calls to a sa- to the same home mm. that usually will trigger it our staff who respond to that may not be specifically trained mm-hmm. but there's an area in their report where they can click on and essentially that they feel like this person could use a, a follow up mm-hmm. and that will get triggered a mobile integrated health team member to be able to go to their home and ask this individual if they would accept some help from us for a while and um, that's one way to do it. Um, before we're we're working on some navigating some legal issues with with things right now, but mm. before that, uh, we worked really closely with Dr. Mack at the hospital, mm-hmm. and she 
would ask us to visit specific patients or she actually would come with us, which was mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. Um, and um, she, she's fantastic. And wow. um, she used to go into patients' home and we yeah. would help her with the mobile side of it. <laughs> sure. And she could do her doctor side of it. And sure. we each kind of had our roles and responsibilities. Uh-huh. So, You think that this, this type of care is, is contributing to better health outcomes for our locals? Yeah. The, the goal of the program is... Um, you know, number one, to reduce the need for 911 right. in their home. Mm-hmm. And then also for us, it's just better uh, better management of that patient yeah. through the healthcare system. So, mm-hmm. you know, if someone receives new medications, they're newly diagnosed with something, mm-hmm. and they have a reaction to that medication that's expected, mm-hmm. they may not have been able to listen to everything that they were told it by the physician when they were being discharged or right. the nurse. And, and they may not understand that, hey, I'm going to feel a little weird when I first take this medicine. And mm-hmm. so... You know, a lot of what we can do is help folks understand, you know, their 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 health issues and what they can do to help mitigate those and also to keep them unnecessarily out of the ER. Mm-hmm. And so particularly with some of um, when we were working with Dr. Mack, we were able to follow up with some of her patients directly and put them in touch either via a phone call or laptop. Mm-hmm. And she could speak with them about any concerns that they might have directly that way. It mm-hmm. helps keep people in their home, helps keep them out of the hospital at a time when COVID was at its peak. And that yeah. was a goal. Yeah. And um, and hopefully helps contribute to better, better care. Yeah. Listeners, we're speaking with Andy Smith, the director of Grand County EMS, the decade-long director <laughs> of Grand County EMS. Um, you know, switching gears a little bit, you know, the first thing that pops up on the Grand County EMS website mm-hmm. um, when you visit it is that you're hiring. Yep. <laughs> is this a perpetual hiring process <laughs> for you, like the rest of Moab organizations? Um, tell us about hiring staff. Sure. Um, so we we have instituted a little bit of a new policy this year in that we are going to hold hiring. We used to uh-huh. be able to hold hiring sessions a couple times a year, okay. and we'd get somewhere around 30 to 40 applications. We'd do a testing process and go through that whole thing. Right now we're hiring every other month, and, and that's kind of our goal for this year is to uh, organize that and keep that rolling. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're um, unfortunately maybe in, in the similar boat as a lot of Moab in that uh, there's kind of a complete cycle continually. We have our folks who are there all the time, mm-hmm. and, and we're extremely happy to have them. Mm-hmm. But the backfill and the fill-in shifts and all of those things are done by PRN staff who are much more mobile. Mm-hmm. And uh, they either work here kind of seasonally or, or um, you know, spend a half a year or a year here and decide they want to go to paramedic school. And so they leave for a while to go to paramedic sure. school or do something mm-hmm. else. So we're, we're in that same boat, but uh, we have a couple positions open now. We have a captain position, mm-hmm. which is uh, a great position to have in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have paramedic and EMT positions open. How are you, you know, attracting people to work to you for Great County EMS? Like you said, like people, you know, in those PRN positions might be seasonal. They yeah. might be traveling through sure. or here for like six months or something. Yeah. How, yeah. How do you attract and keep? Well, I honestly, we, we really focus on culture. We believe okay. that that's really the key to that uh-huh. in, our, in our department is to make sure that we have a good culture where people are heard yeah. and valued. But um one thing's been very clear to me over the last few years is I can't I can't keep up with the pay scale that that is going on, um, and so our our goal really is to provide value to our employees in any way we can, whether that's 
Um, you know, and we have increased wages over the last uh, year or so. We just did a, a raise this year again, mm-hmm. um, and our board is looking at trying to do another one. Um, but really, we want to provide value. We want to be a, a place where you can come and get a, incredible training, get incredible experiences. And if, if you're here for a year, we're grateful. And mm-hmm. as long as um, mm-hmm. as long as you you move on and you represent us well in the future, we're okay to have you for just a year, you know. And uh, I, you know, we take we take pride in that honestly. That a lot of our staff have moved on to either fly, mm. be paramedics on helicopters, or moved on to other bigger roles mm. in different organizations. And while it's it's a little stressful to always have to worry about replacing somebody. We're also pretty proud that they were trained here, and um, mm-hmm. that's our goal: continue to add value. And housing's an issue, and we've had to really expand our scope. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we used to not allow people that didn't live within an hour of Moab. Mm-hmm. Uh, now everyone can. I don't care if you live in Alaska; <laughs> you can fly and work here a couple times a month if you'd like. So we'll we'll figure that out. If widening yeah. that reach. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think widening uh-huh. the net and improving uh-huh. the culture. Okay. Now, another big thing for EMS um, is your new facility. Oh, yes. This is something that, you know, we haven't, I haven't talked with you about yet before. (laughs) Um, This is, you're in the same location, which is next to the senior center, um, but a brand new building. Um, And this is like a year, this has been years in the making. Sure. Um, Tell us about this new building. Yeah. It's, uh, if I can get the middle garage door to go up, we'll be happy, but. It's, it's a beautiful facility. Uh, it's around 12,500 square feet, which is very similar to all the spaces we used to use combined. Okay. Just, um, just in one Yeah, location. just in one building. <laughs> so um, it has eight bedrooms, a mm-hmm. couple bathrooms, nice living quarters for mm-hmm. the staff, and admin space that, that works mm-hmm. really well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really excited about it. It was just completed. The crews moved in just before Christmas. and. Mm-hmm. Um, in honor, my wife and I put a nice little Christmas tree up for them and cooked them breakfast every day, and um, it was great. We were just happy to be there, and the admin side moved in uh, beginning of the year. Okay. And, of course, there's still things that are getting worked on and fixed, yeah. And but, mm-hmm. you know, what this really does is allow us to be much more efficient. Uh, we were spread out between three different buildings, and um, it allows us to be efficient. It allows the crews to have more interactions in that improves culture for us mm-hmm. um and at the same time we you know the the training facility that we have now and the space that we have now really lends itself well to be able to offer more public classes and, and mm-hmm. be more involved that way as well so yeah we're really excited so this this facility of course was funded in a couple different ways yep. can you talk a little bit about sure. that yeah so the um the facility was mostly funded with a cib loan mm-hmm. So uh, community impact board loan, and that was uh, $3.5 million of that. Um, we had another about $1.2 million in a grant from CIB. Mm-hmm. Uh, the county was gracious enough to uh, essentially donate the land. Mm-hmm. Um, they still own the land, of course, but they were willing to let us put a building on it. And then um, the district put in uh, about 120000 which uh, ends up being close to two hundred by the time you buy everything else that you got to buy <laughs> sure, for those things. Sure, yeah. Um, and put in some cash as well. And mm-hmm. that, that really was – that's really how it went. And everybody cooperated really well. The mm-hmm. county uh, and the county was fantastic in helping us through the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're just grateful. It started um, in 2019 and mm-hmm. it's finished. So. It's a big deal. So, but yeah. just no garage doors yet? No, so. they just came in. Oh, they just came in. So okay. they were installed last week. <laughs> okay. And uh, 
We're just having a problem today. Before I came here, I was standing on top of a ladder trying to get our garage door to work. But yeah, they are they are in, and uh, the crews are really grateful for that. Okay, so that means that everything is now consolidated. Everything's up there. Up there. Okay, yep. well, congratulations, Thank because you. I know that was a long time in the making, yeah. and the place where um, EMTs and paramedics um, w- were staying on call was less than desirable. Yeah, yeah. I think you experienced that <laughs> at one experience point. I did experience that at one point. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a stressful situation. Uh-huh. Towards the end, too, we weren't sure we were going to make it. That roof is oh, falling man. in. So, oh, okay. um, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I did want to ask you, too, Grand County EMS, you know, we always say oh, Moab's like this unique area. And mm-hmm. it is it is unique. You know, we're sure. a rural place that has a lot of visitors. Um, there's other areas in Utah that also experience what we're experiencing, Absolutely. too. Can you talk, talk a little bit about the unique challenges that our local EMS faces and other, you know, communities like ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, little small pockets in Utah that are very similar to us as far as EMS challenges. Right. And, um, uh, one, one quick plug, if I have a second, we we do have a rural EMS directors association in Utah that, um, I was one of the founding members of, we started a few years ago, Mm -hmm. specifically for this kind of thing to help support each other and figure out what the best practice is. But, um, and, and we actually held our last conference here in Moab and it was great, wow. but, uh, you know, the really Moab faces, um, as far as EMS goes, some really interesting and unique things besides all of the other housing expense challenges that we come with workforce. Mm-hmm. We also have this, this weird thing where, uh, we have a lot of seasonal staff mm-hmm. that, that live and work here and, um, and then we also have this unique nature of the calls that we go on. Mm-hmm. And so those attract certain types of people. And, um, you know, it, it is really difficult to find, uh, to find those, the, the housing here for people to live here that even want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's even more challenging when they go on a very serious call mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, they, they see something that, that's, you know, traumatic for, yeah. for us to see. And, and then they drive home three, four hours to Salt Lake and aren't surrounded by us and the culture and that ability to help process that. And so, you know, one of the unique things that we have is our staff members live so far apart that it's very hard to have those kind of um, diffusing discussions and the discussions that we have at home. And we've really focused on mental health over the last couple of years and tried to develop resources for our staff. And the board was very supportive of that. We have a agreement with um, a couple of different options for our staff to be able to call to get assistance or help. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the unique challenges they see. And then just the distance we on average spend, um, about 45 minutes longer than our, than our, than the next longest person in, in Utah with our patients. Okay. So we're treating them for about 45 minutes longer than, than most other a- entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that again provides a challenge for staff. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a very unique place to to practice paramedicine and um it's one of those things that attracted me here is okay. you know those challenges i think bring out the best in people and uh that's why people come here and and want to do it and then they get job offers elsewhere <laughs> because <laughs> those places also know they were trained in an area that requires them to hmm. really have Mm. their stuff together and be committed. Right. That is actually like looking very good on their resume. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned mental health and resources, you know, what, what other resources are there for your staff members and help? Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, there's a lot of really good 
one, one of the things, and I, I don't remember when I said it, but I think it got published. Mm-hmm. Um, Moab is great at having, and, and our community offers so many programs and things for people. One of the things that I feel like we've n- never really done well is find a way to connect all those dots. Hmm. So everyone's aware of what else is out there. And so yeah. if my staff run into an issue or if the hospital sees something or if the free health clinic mm-hmm. or, you know, Moab Solutions or if some of these other groups see needs, right. we've had a difficult time kind of finding a way to inform everyone of what the options are. Hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good mental health options out there. And I feel very similar about the mental health world when it comes to first responders is a lot of them have been developed in a bubble and, or, or there's just not good, Hmm. uh, advertisement about what the options are. And so, you know, we, we produce some just essentially just a list of options that our staff, people that they could call, um, mental yeah. health professionals who are under contract with us that yeah. are completely anonymous, mm-hmm. that we take care of the costs for those things. Um, and so, I mean, there are a lot of good options out there. And Utah yeah. also has some great, you know, there's statewide, there's a statewide text line for mental health. There's mm-hmm. a suicide hotline. I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. so many options out there. And it's just about getting those resources to those people who need them mm-hmm. and connecting the dots. So. I imagine that I know that you all do debriefs too mm-hmm. after calls. Yeah. I can imagine that that's not only helpful just for you know the paperwork that you have to do, but yeah. also for um, for staff and yeah. like understanding what they just went through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, debriefs or we call them hot washes are very important <laughs> um, for initial. You know yeah. uh, that that initial kind of hey did. Did you do this on scene? I'm not mm-hmm. sure if we did that, you know, mm-hmm. and somebody else can confirm, oh, yes, I checked sure. that. And mm-hmm. that just kind of helps alleviate a burden you might have, um, you know, after treating a critical patient. And that's super helpful for everyone's mental health. I, we Hot washes are so important in our industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, the, our partners also do them. So the SAR, mm-hmm. the Park Service, mm-hmm. uh, the Sheriff's Office, the PD, we all kind of have that. When we're on a critical incident, it really is a team effort. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and everybody in, appreciates that kind of hot wash or that debrief mm-hmm. so that everyone understands, you know, that we did the best we could or that we had things to improve on, either right. or. So, um, yeah. The meaning of hot wash. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it originated, um, I'm an old wildland firefighter. Uh-huh. And that's what we called them then. And so okay. I, I think it just, I think it probably originated in the, in the wildland world, but that's the term we use now. And I, I that's the immediate right after the incident. Sure. Hey, anybody have anything major that we need to talk, talk about, about kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah. yeah, but debrief's a better term for sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a more correct <laughs> more term. Correct. Well, we've been speaking to Andy Smith, the uh, director of Grand County EMS. Andy, is there anything else that you, before we go, um, that you think our listeners should know about where the agency is right now and anything at all? No, um, I'm just grateful to have the opportunity. And again, our our department, we will be doing some sort of open house, hopefully in May, if things calm down a little bit with COVID and we'll invite community members up. But um, we're grateful to be here and to serve the community. Amazing. I know. I feel like I could talk to you forever. We didn't even get to COVID. <laughs> no, and thank how, goodness. <laughs> okay, we, we won't get to COVID then. Thank you so much, Andy, for thank being you. here.